Welcome to Looking Deeper, the podcast for the preaching ministry of Berean Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. My name is Marcus Little, and I'm the senior pastor of that congregation. We are of the conviction that the people of God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God are enough to bring about the purposes of God for our lives and for the world. Because of that, we view preaching not as a one-way activity, but as a conversation. Please feel free to join us in that conversation by emailing me at marcus at bereangr.org or through our Facebook page, or better yet, by visiting us in person sometime for our Sunday services. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the corner of Coit and Sweet in Northeast Grand Rapids. For now, I trust that God's Spirit will speak to God's people through this part of God's Word. We woke up this morning to one of the things that I love about living in West Michigan, which is that first real snow of the season that falls overnight and you wake up and you look out and you see just the land covered in a perfect sheet of white. Nothing has disturbed it. Maybe the occasional deer or squirrel track is visible in the freshly fallen snow, but there's something just so crisp and pristine and fresh about a January snowfall. And it's delightful to behold through the window from my heated house as I look out on that snowfall. And the world seems new, as though it has begun again. And then I have to go out with my snow shovels and ruin it. And pretty quickly, it's brown on the sides of the roads and you start driving around. And unless you're in some meadow out in the woods, it doesn't look so pristine for very long. There's a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip that I'm particularly fond of. I love all of them. I have the hardbound uh, treasury of all of the strips from over the years, and it's a worthy investment. But there's one where Calvin's mom is calling him to come down for school in the morning, and it's wintertime, and Calvin shouts down, I'm not going to school today. And she comes up and says, what do you mean you're not going to school today? And he says, well, I figured it out. You see, if I don't get out of bed, I can't do anything naughty and wind up on Santa's naughty list, so I'm just going to stay in bed until after Christmas. And she informs him, of course, that truancy is among the things which land you on the naughty list and that he has to go to school and he gets out of bed saying, that Santa's got me coming and going. I think sometimes we feel that way as we wake up to a new year or a new day. We feel like if I could just stay here, the day would be fine. And we know that as soon as our feet hit the floor, things are bound to probably go in a less than ideal way. New Year's Day yesterday represents psychologically, it's an arbitrary fact that the calendar turns from one year to the next, from one month to the next. But psychologically, there's something internally like the new snow that tells us Maybe today is a fresh start. Maybe this year will be different than last year. And whether we engage in New Year's resolutions or simply an unspoken hope about what this year will bring that will be different than last year, we approach the new year hoping for a new beginning, hoping for something fresh, hoping for something that will bring life. And so whether it's in the realm of our health or our finances, our relationships. Maybe it's a employment or vocational change, or maybe for those of us that are in school, it's the change from one semester to the next. We had our final exams in December, and now we're starting a new semester, and the, the grade book is clean slate. We have a way ahead of us. Whatever it is, the new year brings with it that opportunity 
the possibility of something new and fresh. And so that's where our minds are drawn on days like today. And as a congregation, of course, you should be aware that we are approaching this new year and we're asking at the outset to spend a couple of weeks deliberately seeking what is it that God has for us as a congregation in this new year? What is it that God would have us to see and to understand and to be formed by so that we might live with renewed purpose, a fresh dedication to the work and the ways of God in our midst in this coming year? And we've called that a wilderness experience. We've asked to voluntarily enter this wilderness. And if you haven't already, there's resources in the foyer to help guide us. We're only a day in. It's not too late to jump in if you haven't yet. The wilderness is something that appears over and over in Scripture. And we've spent the last several weeks through Advent talking about Jesus' engagement with the wilderness how he deliberately went out to the wilderness to John to be baptized and then was driven further into the wilderness to be tested and learned endurance and how to stand firm in what had been spoken over him at his baptism, that he was God's beloved son with whom God was well pleased. But then he returned from the wilderness with a message that in his person, the kingdom of God had drawn near And he called people to join him in forming a community that would be transformed by that reality. We've talked about the fact that the wilderness shows up over and over and over in Scripture. And as we turn the calendar and turn to a new book of Scripture, the book of Jeremiah, it should be no surprise that the wilderness shows up. Jeremiah is an interesting prophet. He is the prophet oftentimes called of last hope of no turning back. All of the prophets had been warning up to this point that that Israel had abandoned God's ways of justice and holiness. They had abandoned the path of life set forth in God's good word. And as a result, they were going to be taken out of the land. The land had been God's good gift to them and they were going to be removed from it if they did not change their ways. And they did not change their ways. And so along comes Jeremiah to say, it is now too late. That's Jeremiah's message. There is nothing you can do to forestall the exile. That doesn't leave, like if Jeremiah had a now what, there is no now what. That's just, it's just announcing it's over. And so much of the book of Jeremiah reads with a note of despair. And in fact, Jeremiah sounds this note of anger at God on a number of occasions. The book of Jeremiah is one of the most biographical of the prophetic books. And we're going to focus on the passages that narrate Jeremiah's life because Jeremiah's experience as a prophet is part of the message. And his very candid conversations with God in which he laments to God, both Israel's fate and his task as the prophet of no return frustrates him and stand as a witness to us. But then right in the middle of the book, roughly chapters 29 to 32 or so, there is this glimmer. And so I want to start with the glimmer. And in chapter 31, verses 2 and 3, we read this, thus says Yahweh, 
the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Jeremiah lived in a wilderness experience, a time in which everything that he knew and put confidence in and hoped for was crashing down around him. And his only job was to say, yes, it is. And there's not that you can do to stop it. That's Jeremiah's wilderness. And he says, those who survive find grace in that place. You see, we have to be willing to believe that that is really the case, that there is no situation or circumstance or wilderness that we can encounter where God's grace cannot be found. When Israel sought for rest, Yahweh appeared to them from far away. Think about that image for a moment. The wilderness is a place of removal. We've been removed from what we imagine the presence of God to be centered in. And instead of seeking to strive and to build and to work, it says, when Israel sought for rest. This is the consistent message of Scripture. It is when we give up trying to make God or compel God or manipulate God or leverage God into doing things for us. It is when we say, I can do nothing, God must do it. It is then that God appears from far away and says, I have loved you. Not I love you now that you have sought me in the wilderness and sought rest. I have loved you with an everlasting love. There has never been a moment where God has not loved us. And there is no containing the measure of God's love. There is no putting a limit or a boundary on it or saying he loves us up until this point and then we'll stop. Or there was a time when he did not love us, or a situation in which we put ourselves when he did not love us, and then something changed and God began to love us. Can't do it. Therefore, I have continued my, and the word here is chesed. It's that Hebrew word that there is not an English equivalent for. We don't have a word big enough, strong enough to communicate what this word that we translate faithfulness here means. It is God's iron-willed determination to do good all the time for all creation. That's chesed. Faithfulness just scratches at the surface of it. And God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, so I have continued to have this posture of chesed towards you. This is the grace in the wilderness that Jeremiah, the prophet of no return, the prophet with no hope, buried in the middle of the book, holds forth. In the verses that follow in this chapter, Jeremiah begins to speak of a return, that the exile, the wilderness, will not be forever. God's love is forever, the wilderness is not. And it's hard to believe when you see the city that is the capital of your kingdom and the temple that is the dwelling place of God Most High being torn down stone by stone by the most powerful empire humanity had seen to that point in history, it is hard to believe that it would ever come back. And in fact, the testimony of Scripture makes a point of saying this over and over again. When has it ever been the case that a nation has been founded from a class of slaves to the mightiest empire that existed, Egypt. When has that ever happened in human history? 
When has it ever happened that a nation that's been oppressed and exiled and scattered has been restored to its original land? When has these things ever happened? This is what God does. And so Jeremiah begins over the next 30 verses or so to say this is what is going to come for those who survive, for those to whom God shows this chesed. And then verse 31 says, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Behold, the days are coming. So Jeremiah says that there's this grace to be found in the wilderness, that there is a time coming when all that is going on, when this wilderness experience of exile and destruction and national collapse will be reversed. And then he says, the days are coming when I, Yahweh, will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And before we look at what Jeremiah says about that covenant, we want to talk a little bit about covenants in general. If there's a new covenant, there must be an old covenant, at least one. And part of what we need to do is, at the beginning of a new year, and part of what we seek when we enter the wilderness is not so much to encounter new things, although that is certainly something to expect that God will surprise us, but often it will be in the context of rediscovering first things, rediscovering the foundational things. And so I want to take us back and remind us of things that hopefully we already know very, very well. One of the things that we should know very, very well is that God is a God who from the beginning has been a covenant-making God. Now, when we hear the word covenants, oftentimes we think of something akin to a contract, something that we enter into with another party or parties, and we make promises one to another. And if any of us violates the promises that we make, then the covenant is broken and we are all released from it. The most common uh, instance of this would be a marriage covenant. Two people enter into it, they each make promises, and as we know too well, those promises can easily be broken, and the covenant can be ruined. I want to suggest to you that the way that God makes covenants is not the way we make covenants. We make covenants in a reality in which we cannot trust that the other party or parties will hold up their end of the bargain. And so we require a mutuality in our covenants. There are at least four covenants that I can see in Scripture that illustrate some of these themes, and it begins at the very beginning. Covenants involve promises. And in Genesis 1, we read these as the first words of God to humanity, that God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. The first words of God to humanity are a blessing that establishes what God has done for humanity and will continue to do for humanity and for creation. The emphasis is on what God is doing without reference in this stage to what humanity does. It is unconditional. 
There's no if. There's no I will bless you as long as. This isn't contract language. This is promise language. And this is the posture of God from the very beginning. And if we do not get the beginning of the story right, we will not understand anything that follows. The beginning of the story is that God loves creation, that God loves and therefore creates, and creates with the purpose of blessing and extending goodness to creation. This is the first covenant. And there are no conditions placed upon it. And just like the snow in my driveway, our human ancestors got out their snow shovels real fast. And the story went downhill. They did not trust that this promise was solid. They did not trust that the promise was secure. And so they abandoned the covenant, which is their prerogative. Say, I choose not to trust the promise that was unconditional. And this is why sin is always foolish. There is no rational reason to doubt this promise, and yet we do. And God at that point, if this was a contract situation, could have invoked the penalty clause and said, then we're done with one another. But God doesn't do that. God comes running after humanity over and over and over again because God has loved humanity with an everlasting love, and that doesn't change, and God continues to demonstrate chesed towards creation. So for the next 10 chapters of Genesis, we read of the wreckage of what we do when we don't believe God loves us. That is the core human problem, incidentally. And then we come to Genesis 12. And God plucks a man named Abram and his wife Sarai out of the most powerful city at the time and says, I'm gonna take you somewhere better. I'm going to take you somewhere where the intention that I have for creation can be realized. And God says to Abram, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Note again, this is a covenant And it is all one-sided. God is simply telling Abraham what God is going to do. And it's dominated again by blessing. This is the same God of Genesis 1. Abram has done nothing to merit this. God says, you're going to be my vehicle to bless all the families of the earth. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you a nation So that all the nations, this is not I will make you a nation so that you will be blessed and everyone else can go pound sand. This is I will bless you so that you will be a blessing for all the families of the earth. And over and over and over again, Abram and Sarai struggled to believe that this blessing is real and true. And yet God sticks with them. And their children are no better. Isaac and Jacob really struggle to believe that this promise is as solid as it is. And Jacob's kids are no picnic either. But time and again, God maintains chesed towards these people. Until finally, they are a nation living in the land. And we had our series in 1 Chronicles where we saw the rise of David to the throne. And we saw this third covenant that God made. In 1 Chronicles 17, 
And God says to David, now therefore, if you will, oh, there it is, and I will make for you a name, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them. Moreover, I declare to you that Yahweh will build you a house. I will confirm your son Solomon in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Again, note the unconditional nature of the language. I will do this. I will do this. You thought you were going to build me a house. God says, nope, that's not how I work. I don't operate transactionally. You build me a nice house, I'll establish your kingdom. Nope. I'm just going to do it because that's who I am. I will do these things. So we have these three covenants. But Jeremiah said, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then says, it's not like the covenant that I made when I brought them out of Egypt. There's a covenant that we skipped over, and many of you no doubt noticed that I skipped one. The covenant that is made between the people of Israel and God when they leave Egypt is a little different. Exodus 19 has the core promise. Four books of Scripture, Exodus through Deuteronomy, are the contents of the covenant. We could take a long time going through it. But Exodus 19 boils it down to this. Now, therefore, if... Ah, condition... You will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's important that we understand why there is a condition here all of a sudden. This covenant's a little different, because this covenant isn't about the blessing that God wants to extend to all humanity. God is not saying, if you obey my rules, then I will bless you. Pay close attention. God says, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. The scope of this covenant is still all of humanity. The condition is, if you keep my covenant, you will be to me a kingdom of priests. The point of the covenant made at Sinai is so that Israel can be the vehicle to bring blessing to all the nations. Failure to keep the covenant doesn't remove them from God's love. It renders them unable to bring blessing to the nations. See, if I don't believe that God loves me, I'm certainly not going to show other people that God loves them. This is the challenge. My failure to trust that God loves me does not change the fact that God loves me. That would put me in way too much power. But it can obscure from the view of others how much God loves them. And this is Israel's failure. Israel fails to demonstrate how radically God has loved them, and they look just like every other kingdom on earth, which is marked not by lavish generosity, but by gross injustice and oppression and harm and ultimately death. And so they go the way of all the other nations, and yet God is not done. And so he says, behold, the days are coming. Jeremiah 31 declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was as a husband to them, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, after the days when I bring them back from exile, when they're out of that wilderness. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach their neighbor and each their brother or sister, saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You may have noticed that there are no conditions in that covenant. There is no if. There is no unless. There is no as long as. There are simply multiple repeated statements of I will, I will, I will. And you notice that it centers on this idea of the law and teaching. I will put my law on their hearts. And they will not teach one another anymore. This harkens back to the Sinai covenant, the law that was given at Sinai, and now something is different. The law is not written on tablets of stone, it is written on human hearts. Now, we read law, the word law, and immediately what comes to our mind is a legislative reality, a courtroom reality, a world of crime and punishment. And I've made this comment before that I think we are a little commandment happy when we approach the scriptures. We see commandments everywhere. And I think this is partly because of the nature of the words that we use, law and commandment, but also because that's the human condition. We don't ultimately believe that the universe is run by a God who freely and unconditionally loves. We think we want to operate in a world where there are conditions, where there's a a rationality to why God loves. Well, God loves people who follow God's ways and who entrust themselves to him. The word for law here is the word Torah. It's the word the Israelites use for the first five books of the scripture. And the meaning of the word is much closer to a word instruction than it is to what we think of when we think of law. Similarly, the Ten Commandments that start that law in the Hebrew Bible are not referred to as commandments. They are the Ten Words. And so as we ask for us, because we live under this new covenant, this is the covenant that you and I live within, it is important for us to understand how to apply it. So as we ask now, what what do we do with this covenant, this new covenant that Jeremiah announces? There are three ways that I think we misuse what we call the law of God, but I think is better understood as the word of God, the instruction of God, what God is making known about who God is. Even that first word from God that we read, we often call it a mandate, a commandment to be fruitful. And I've said this over and over again. It's not a commandment, it's a blessing. And blessings and commandments are two very different things. So I think we need to be careful about the ways in which we interact with the instruction of God, the word of God. And Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant, I think, points us in some directions. The first thing that I think we need to appreciate is that When we read God's word, we are reading statements of things we get to do rather than things we have to do. And this, again, this goes contrary to our basic intuition as human beings. 
I don't often tell stories on my kids, but they provided me with an irresistible instance of this this week, and so I'm going to go ahead and share it. We saw that the snow was coming, and I hate taking Christmas lights down when they've gotten frozen in the gutters by piles of snow. So I knew that even though I would keep them up all the way to Epiphany, because it's still Christmas, everybody, that I didn't want to do it, I didn't want to work that hard. So we were pulling in the driveway on Friday, and I said, kids, would any of you like to help me take the lights down? Request, not requirement, not saying you got to help me, just maybe you want to help me. First words out of their mouths, will we get paid? To which the answer was no, (laughs) you're not getting paid. So I did it by myself. That's how we operate. I'll do it if there is a reward or if if there's a punishment if I fail to do it. We're consequence driven. We operate in a world of do we have to. And that's not how God designed us to operate. That is not the world God envisions. If your motivation for following after the ways of God are driven by the consequences, we're doing it wrong. And I am just as prone to this as anybody else. But when God says, I'm going to write my instruction on their hearts, I'm going to wire it into their DNA to where if you tap them on the knee... My love comes out, not because you have to, but just because that's who you are now that you have seen who God is. We don't have to, we get to. And so, secondly, we should be people who are marked by liberating rather than controlling others. See, the consequence is if I live in a universe where to follow God is about what I have to do, what I'm required to do, rather than what I am free to do, my tendency towards others will be to press them into my same mold. Whatever I understand to be God's standards and rules, I will seek to compel others to follow, and I'll get very uncomfortable if others do not do it the way that I see it. And this is stifling to spiritual life. Now, let me be very, very clear. This is not to say that the nature of God and the way God has set the universe up to work is optional or more like guidelines rather than rules. This is not what this is about. God is who God is, and God's creation only thrives when it operates in ways that are consistent with who God is. But who God is is a being who freely and generously loves without compulsion. You see, God loves not because God has to, but because that's who God is. And so, for us, life comes when we also are transformed by God's love. So, this is not about optional versus requirement when I say that it's about what we get to do rather than what we have to do. It is simply to say that our motivation matters a great deal. And this bears fruit then when we view others and see that rather than seeking to control them externally with tablets of stone, we recognize that we can't do that. And parents, you know this full well. You cannot control how your children turn out. And kids, we know that and we still try to sometimes, for which I will be the first to apologize Our heavenly parent is no different. The desire is not to control us to do things we don't want to do. The challenge 
is to become the kinds of people who want the life of God. And this is why Paul says that we obey in the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter. The nature of our obedience is vastly different than what we oftentimes imagine. And so the third thing, if that is the case, we should be people who open rather than close. Let me explain what I mean by that. You see, when we start imagining that God's law is about what we have to do and we seek to control others, then we're starting to make determinations about who is in and who is out. And we imagine that our job is to patrol the walls and make sure that the gates are only open to those that are worthy, and we always imagine that we're already on the inside when we do that. As I was going through the um, Wilderness Journal that we put together uh, today, the passage in Mark 2 stood out to me where Jesus says to the paralytic who's lowered by his four friends through the ceiling, son, your sins are forgiven. And as I was thinking about this passage and I read that story, I thought, the guy didn't do anything. The guy didn't even ask for forgiveness. Jesus just does it. And then the Pharisees start grumbling. Jesus opened to someone that they didn't think deserved to be open to. And then Jesus goes on and starts eating with tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees are grumbling because the doors are being opened to people that aren't worthy. And Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then heals the paralytic to demonstrate that he has authority to forgive. And I'd never thought about authority to forgive. What's that about? It called to mind something that I've been thinking about a lot. In Matthew 18, we are told that what we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I'm not going to pretend to perfectly understand exactly what's in play there. But if it's about people's eternal destinies, my question would be, why would we ever bind instead of loose? If we have the ability to set people free to enjoy the life of God or to keep them out, why on earth would we ever choose to keep them out? If the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, why on earth would he not? And I think in forgiving the sins of the paralytic, he's saying that. This is what I came to do. This is what communion is about. And so it's appropriate for us to observe communion this morning. We begin with the bread that calls to mind what was given in the wilderness. The bread from heaven that Moses told the people, this was so that you would know that you don't live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The instruction of God is your life. Jesus echoed that word in his wilderness testing. And as much as it is the text of the pages in front of us, we also know that it is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And then poured forth the spirit of God into our hearts so that we are the body of Christ, the incarnate word, the instruction of God. Paul says that God has now written the new covenant on tablets of human hearts so that the glory of God would be made known in the world. And the glory of God is the love of God for the world. And so as we take the bread, we are reminding ourselves that God's love was so great that Jesus became one of us in order to make God's love known to us. And we manifest and exhibit that love 
as a body. Let's take the bread together. God, we thank you for the gift of your word, the gift of your instruction, that you have made known to us what you are like. You have been generous with us. That you have brought us together as a body indwelt by your spirit. That you have written onto our hearts your nature of love and grace and kindness. So God, we ask that that would continue to be what informs who we are as a people and that your glory would shine forth from us as we are transformed from one image of glory to the next, following your ways by the Spirit who gives life. Amen. So I said that this passage in Jeremiah is buried in the middle of the book, and yet it is the most well-known Jeremiah passage in the New Testament. It's quoted over and over again. The first time is on the lips of Jesus at the Last Supper. When Jesus says to his followers, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is the one who instructs his followers that what Jeremiah was talking about was what Jesus was accomplishing. That Jesus was going to pour out his blood to make real the covenant that Jeremiah had talked about. And the action is all Jesus's. I will pour out my blood and then pour out the Spirit of God. And this comes about at Pentecost where the Spirit of God is poured out and something takes place that the people around them can only say, what is going on? And Peter says, God's just keeping the promises that were made hundreds of years ago. And not just through Jeremiah. Peter talks about Joel saying that the Spirit would be poured out and everybody would prophesy. One of the fascinating things that comes up in this passage when Jeremiah says they won't teach each other anymore Last week we talked about disciples, and one of the interesting things is there are no teachers in the church, there are only disciples. There are only learners. We are all always learning, and we are learning from the Spirit. Now, to be sure, we learn together. There is a teaching that goes on, but there is not this separation of certain disciples have reached a point where they can teach and stop learning, and others still need to learn. Jesus pours out the blood of the new covenant so that we might receive the Spirit. And so as we take the cup together, we celebrate the gift of God that is the Spirit of God dwelling in our midst. God, your table is open to us. It is a table that you have set into which we bring nothing. Yet you invite us generously to receive lavishly from your hand the gift of your spirit. And so we ask that we would receive that gift this morning. As we continue now in worship, we ask that you would do it. There is nothing that we can do to bring about purposes and the life 
that you desire for creation. And so we continue by asking you to do what you have been doing from eternity past, that you would maintain your hesed towards us because of the love with which you have loved us throughout eternity. We thank you for it, and we stand expecting to receive it. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. I pray you were blessed by what you heard. We hope you'll join us again next week, whether on this podcast, via our live stream, or in person. Until then, watch for our bonus episodes with reflections on this message and a preview of next week's message that drop throughout the week. Until then, may the God who loves us beyond our ability to think or imagine bless you, keep you, be gracious to you, look upon you with favor, and give you peace.